the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Well, hello, everyone. We've been praying for you. Why don't you take some time today and pray for your pastors? Uh, the pastors that you got are facing some really tough times, uh, and I know they covet your prayers. Um, you know, we got pastors on one end of the country that are standing up and saying, you know, the the states are stepping in where they shouldn't be stepping in and, and taking away some of our religious freedom, and, the, and they're standing up and doing that they're going to need some prayers in that lord they're you know lord's offering offering us all that time of prayer to be able to dig in dig into the scriptures find what's real find what find what he's downloading to everybody and, and allowing those prayers to go up to heaven go up to him as a as an offering mm. and so we just ask that everybody Everybody just prays for pastors. Um, there's, there's, not only are we talking about those kind of things, but uh, you know, as far as state and and what to do with the churches, but there's real, real people issues, real people things that are going on, and every pastor out there needs to have prayers. Um, there's too many of them that are uh, that are feeling alone right now. So, if nothing else, uh, pray for your pastor, and maybe even just give him a call and say, hey, thanks, we appreciate you. So, anyway, why don't we welcome uh, Pastor Brian Chilton. <laughs> Thank you, Curtis. And I want to say something in, in regard to that. I'm, I'm really glad that you that you said that because uh, there's a recent study that Tom Rayner put out that said that, uh, that it's anticipated that there's going to be a mass exodus of, of pastors in the not-too-distant future. In fact, there was another guy from the state convention that said that, that he estimated that within two years... Uh, we could very well see the greatest exodus of pastors from pastoral ministry that we've ever seen in American history. And um, a lot of that is coming by the fact that, as Tom Rayner said, pastors normally suffer from a thousand cuts uh, because they get hit everywhere they turn. And so if ever there was a time to encourage your pastor, if ever there was a time to, to really stand in and, and let your pastor know how much you appreciate him, to now is that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know that there's, uh, you know, there, you know uh, give thanks to your pastor day and so on and so forth. But really, um, you know, the men, are, the men are sitting behind the, sitting behind their Bible and at their desk working hard to be able to find out what God's got to say to you each and every Sunday, preparing messages. And not only does it, do they have those kind of stresses, but just the general pastoral stresses of, of dealing with the general public um, be hard stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so we have uh, the fourth of our podcast, and actually it's three as we're digging into it, because the first one we gave an overview um, of what it is, but uh, this week's is podcast number four, which is, what is omniscience? So we're going to dig in, and we're going to have a discussion about the divine omniscience, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. It's a deep subject. It's going to be a long one. Um, I'm sure we're going to have Oh, a lot to go through, and I'm sure we're, we might even have to split into two. We'll see what the time, the time goes and where we can get from there. So if we're ready to jump in, Brian, let's go ahead and jump in. Absolutely. Uh, so first and foremost, just, just to redefine omniscience, uh, and, 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 I, and I would encourage everyone to go back. This, this is a series. I mean, you don't have to listen to them in order, but it would really be helpful. In fact, to be honest, the podcasts that Curtis and I have done together, these these are probably, I mean, we've had some great podcasts, but these are probably some of my favorites thus far we've done to date. Yeah. Uh, so I would encourage everyone to go, if you're if you're new to this series, to go back to the first one 
and listen listen through as we're going through this series. So the divine omniscience describes God's unlimited knowledge of all things past, present, and future. God knows all possibilities. He knows all mathematical equations. Uh, you know, algebra, I was never great at algebra because I never could find that missing X, Y, or Z. Uh, but uh, God is the master mathematician. He knows all scientific laws. He knows all creatures, past, present, and future. He knows what transpires in the woods when no one else is there. We have a... In fact, this. if you hear some outdoor uh, sounds like crickets and tree frogs and stuff that's because we're doing this i'm doing this podcast outdoors and so but down from where we live there's a creek and uh in this creek i mean there's all kind of creatures there's there's all kind of uh, animals around about i can't see it now because here on the eastern seaboard it's uh, 9 24 when we're doing this so it's dark by now and so i can't see what's down there but god does he knows here, and, and Curtis, you're in Montana. God knows the creatures there. God knows all of them at the same time, and it's an amazing oh, thing yeah. to think, consider. So there, God knows the exterior of a person. He knows the inward person, inner person. There isn't a thought that is thought that God didn't already think the thought that we thought, or he didn't know the thought that we thought. Um, so <laughs> that's a tongue twister. But every person's free decisions are even foreknown by God before creation so you can try to trick God, but God's going to know the trick you try to trick him with before you ever tricked him with it. So, But you never tricked him with it. So anyhow, uh, he knows everything there is to know, and so that's what divine omniscience means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of scripture to back this up, and uh, boy, we're going to be digging into that uh, today. So, um, yeah, that's a good... So, uh, does number two, does the Bible offer support for the idea of divine omniscience oh boy it does we're gonna dig into that (laughs) does it ever i've got some uh i've got these scriptures printed off because we do have a bunch i i had i had some scriptures curtis you added quite a few scriptures so we have together we've compiled a huge list of scriptures so i'll read off the first one and curtis if you don't mind reading off the second one and we'll kind of tag team it back and forth so the first one is psalm 147 verse 5 says our Lord is great, vast in power, and here's really the omniscient part. His understanding is infinite. Mm. And then Psalm uh, 139, 1 through 6. I see how you did this. You gave me the long, the long <laughs> sections here. Well, see, I can't, get all, I can't get away on the next one, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Very true. Uh, Psalm 139, 1 through 6. Uh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You, you know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels, my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word was on my tongue, you knew, you know all about it. Uh, you have encircled me. You have placed me in your hand, your hand on me. Uh, this wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is, it is lofty. I am unable to reach it. See, at that last verse really shows the complexity in even trying to understand divine omniscience because his knowledge is so lofty that that there's on there's a certain limitation to even for us to even know what this omniscience is because his knowledge right. is so far vast beyond what we could ever comprehend yeah matthew chapter 6 verses 3 and following jesus says these words when you give to the poor don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Now, why does he want you to do this? Because your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. God sees and knows things we don't know. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go in your private room, shut the door, and pray to your Father, who's in secret. He's not only is God omnipresent there with us, but God is omniscient, knowing these things that's going on. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble out on like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for the many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. God knows what we need before we even know what we need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Job 23.10 Yet He knows the way I have taken when he has tested me, I will emerge as pure gold. Amen. Yeah. 
Psalm 34, 15 and 16, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil, to remove all memory of them from the earth. Not only is this God's omnipresence, but it is His knowledge of all things going on. And then Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are everywhere observing the wicked and the good. Amen. Mm. Yeah. First Peter 3.12 says because, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who seek to do what is evil. And here again, not only just the omnipresence but the all knowledge of God uh, is involved with that. Right. And we we talked about last week um his his power Absolutely. and so here, here you are um the, the lord is against those who do what is evil um like you said last week you better get right with god yeah <laughs> and now <laughs> yeah yeah uh first john three twenty. uh so 19 through 20 and i'll read this this is how we will know that we will belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Verse 20, whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows all things. Mm. And, when the, and when the Bible says all things, it means all, all things. things. <laughs> Absolutely. Matthew 10, 29, 30 says, Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without, the father, without your father's consent. So get this, there's not a bird that falls from the sky without God knowing it. Yeah. But even the hairs on your head, mine grows fewer every year, have been all, all been counted. So don't be afraid you are worth more than two sparrows. So God knows infinitely more about ourselves than we even know about ourselves. Yeah, yeah that's and that's something that, that we don't even consider. Um, you know, that, like, it, like it says, you know, when yet not one of them falls to the ground, but yet he knows these things uh, of us personally. Absolutely. So, yeah. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, uh, verse 9, Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Verse 10, I declare the end from the beginning and from the long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my work, mm. all my will. Psalm 139, verses uh, 1 through 6. Um, actually, you know what? I think we've read that. I think I duplicated that. So let me go on to the next one. <laughs> Not sure how that happened. Uh, let me go on to the next one here. It says, First uh, uh, Kings eight thirty-nine 39. Uh, mm -hmm. It says, When there is famine in the land, when there is pestilence, when there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, when their enemy besieges them in the land and its cities, when there is any plague or illness, every prayer or petition that any person or that all your people Israel may have, they each know their own affliction as they spread out their hands towards this temple. May you hear in heaven your dwelling place, and may you forgive, act, and give it to everyone according to all their ways, since you know each heart. God knows each heart. He knows the interior. What's the heart? The heart is a biblical language for the center, the seat of a person's mind, will, and emotions. Okay, so he, so he knows our hearts. He knows our inner man. For you alone know every human heart, so that they may fear you all the days they live on the land you gave our ancestors. Uh, yeah, Acts one twenty four. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know, know everyone's heart. Show which of these two you have you have chosen to take the place in the apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs mm. so so even if you look at that um, there kind of even dumps back into what you just read from first Kings but you know it's it's also there there again he's there they're allowing that door for God to be able to move by, by praying there we are for the next pastor. Absolutely. For the next apostle. Yep. Matthew 9.4, Jesus says, or uh, this, the gospel says, perceiving their thoughts. Ooh. 
Uh-huh. God knows our thoughts. Jesus. Can you imagine being around Jesus and Jesus looking at you and know what you're thinking? <laughs> Woo! Yeah. That could be scary. Perceiving yeah. the thoughts, Jesus says, why are you thinking evil things in your heart? So he knew what they were thinking. Mm. Yeah, and I, you know, you kind of, when when you think about that one, I was actually going to little touch a little bit on that, but, but it's not like... Um, and I'll touch on it here in a little bit, but you think about it, the, the word there, perceiving their thoughts, it can be kind of even construed that it's just like he's picking up with the, the vibes that they're throwing down. You know, he's picking up their actions and he's kind of, he's seeing what they're, what they're kind of, um, their actions are leading towards. But that's not what the Bible's saying there. It's, it's, he knows their knowledge he, or he knows what they're going to say. Yeah. So... Anyway, Matthew twelve twenty five. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Abraham Lincoln didn't come up with that. Abraham, nope. old Abraham, he quoted, nope. he quoted from Jesus. Yep. <laughs> Mark 2, 6 through 8 says, But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. All right, we already see the pattern here. <laughs> Questioning in their yeah. hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this. Wouldn't you hate to be a de- the debate debate adversary of Jesus? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Well, William Lane Craig. There probably wouldn't be a need to be a mediator. Ooh. <laughs> can you, I mean, William Lane Craig is really good, but can you imagine going up against Jesus who knows what you're thinking and knows every strategy you have before you even do it? Man, so he, he perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Mm. Yeah. So Luke 6, uh, 6-8, but he knew their thoughts and he told the man with with the shriveled hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. John four eighteen says, "For you've had uh, well now." Okay, let me put this in perspective. Okay, this. I this, was, was, was going to. Uh, uh, do you want to go ahead and read it? I was going to do a little bit of teaching on that. Oh sure. So j- just to put it in perspective, just 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 to, just just to give the story before we read the verse. That this is this is happening where he's talking with the woman at the well, mm-hmm. and the conversation's going on. So mm-hmm. this is where he comes to verse eighteen. Mm-hmm. He says, "For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true." Mm-hmm. See, and and this goes even deeper yet, Brian. And I I kind of wanted to kind of go into this and touch on this because if we back up, if, if you want to spend a little time here with John four with me. Sure. We can back up. We can back up to verse four. Okay, so so I want to show I want to show something here. Uh, there's there's multiple things here with this. John four four it says, but he needed to go through Samaria, and then verse five. I'll just kind of read this. So he came to the city of Samaria, Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground where Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his long journey, said thus, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A and woman that, and that's, of that's, Samaria, about, that's about noon, just to put it in perspective for everyone. Right, yeah, exactly. I was just going to, yeah, it's, it's right at noon. It's high noon. Um, a woman of Samaria came to draw the water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is who is asking you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and, and would, would have given... Uh, he would given would have given you living water, and then you can jump down to over to verse sixteen, and he, Jesus says to her, "Call your husbands and come here." The woman answered, verse seventeen, and said, "I have no husband." Jesus said to her, "You have well said, I have no husband." And then here's verse eighteen: "For you have five husbands, 
and the one whom you are with now is not your husband. That you have spoke truly. But but let's look at this real quick. Verse 4. In, in John 4, verse 4, it says, he needed to go through Samaria. It, and so he's being intentional. He mm, knows he's yeah. got to drive this drive this bus, so to speak, that direction. And so he intends. And you read earlier on um, in verse 1, it says, Therefore, the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made uh, the heard made, made and baptized more disciples than John. And then it, it talks about the, him just turning around and being like, oh, time for me to go. I've got to be intentional. This is the direction I'm going. So here it is, the intentionality by God to, to, to know that he's got a divine encounter coming. Okay, so he's already showing his omniscience there, right? Absolutely. So, verse uh, 6, go ahead. Now, I, I was just going to say that, that absolutely, and I think that, and we're going to hit on this a little bit more, but keep this in mind as we're going through these different systems about how to work through divine knowledge, sovereignty, if you will, and human freedom, because mm-hmm. you see that at play in this story. And mm-hmm. and I hadn't even thought about that, to be honest with you, until you mentioned that. But that's a great point to be made yeah. to Curtis, that, that God, Jesus, knew that he needed to go through it because he knew that there was this woman... And I don't know if you were going to hit on this or not. I mean, because I, I'm not trying to go there if you were going to talk about this, but talk about the evangelism that the woman did. But So this not with just one person. She yeah. she evangelized yeah. the entire community. Yeah. Yeah, and see, and, and so like in verse 6, it, it says in here um, that Jesus was wearied and he sat down on the well. He just so happened to sit down at the right time when the exact woman was going to be there, Right. And in verse 12, we read, you know, we see there, and it, her mind and her heart were ripe to receive what God was being, what, what, what Jesus was saying, what was being said. What, it, she was she was asking questions, you know, asking these things. So in verse 12, she asked, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from, from it himself, as, as well as his sons and the livestock? And she's like, wait a minute, are you greater than than that? Because I'm, I'm starting to kind of see something here, or starting to understand something. And in verse 14, she goes in uh, and says, But whoever drinks of the water, that I shall give him, and he will never thirst, But the wa- or he will thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So he's already saying that those that drink of the water that that Jesus has given them is all it's all knowing, and that 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 they who even drink of it of his water will 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 do that. So here here he's here he's talking about he knows that those people that come to him will will never will will, will have this everlasting water in their life. And, and another point to be made there as well, talking about him coming at noon. Uh-huh. Dr. Purser, Dr. Leo Purser actually spoke at a church for homecoming, and, and he brought this up in his message, because he actually sp- spoke on this very text. And he brought up a point that coming at noon, the the woman went to the well at noon. Now, now there's a reason for that. Yeah, yeah. Most of the other women in the community had shunned her because we see she had gone through husbands like an alcoholic goes through a beer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yep. she really had. I mean, she had five husbands and was living with a man. So she was shunned from the community. That means she didn't go to the well at the same time everyone else did. So there's an application. We were talking about, you know, about biblical interpretation, crossing the principatizing bridge. So looking at that from her perspective coming over to this one, we see that she, God used a woman who was the the um, black outcast. sheep, the outcast of the entire community, and through her, Jesus showed up at the right time when she was coming to the well. No one else wanted to associate with her. They thought right. they were too good to associate with her. 
but Jesus right. did, and it was through his interaction with that woman that the entire community came to salvation. Right. And but look at this. So verse 16, Jesus loaded the statement, and, and he revealed to her her sinful past, um, you know, and, and her broken life. So that, so you think about it, Jesus loaded that question by saying, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so he's leading her in that. So isn't that what God does to our hearts? Isn't that what he does to us when we're, when we're at a spot where we don't really realize that, that we may be in a position that, that's harming us from relationship with him? And then he loads the question. He loads those things on us to where we realize, wait a minute, God knows this about me. I can't run from it. So, and then uh, verse 18, it's like, um, I, I, you know, when we read that, you just think about that. It's, it's deep knowledge, but it's not just deep knowledge of us. It's deep, intimate knowledge of every one of our lives. It's that it's, it's, he knows that she had five husbands. He knows that she had five husbands and is, and is, and is living with a man. He knows that she's going to be there at noon. He knows these things. And so verse uh, verse 18 really kind of brings that out. And then verse 19, her perceiving uh, is different than his knowledge. If you look at if you look at verse 19, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> okay, that's what I was talking about. Is she's kind of, wait a minute, I kind of get a sense here that something's going on. Something's stirring in her heart, something's stirring in her soul, but yet she still can't place her finger on it. And then uh, verse 21 where Jesus says, uh, um, uh, Woman, believe me, there's an hour coming when you will when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship your, worship the Father. Mm. You're, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we, what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So, he, what he's saying in there is is simply, you guys do this, but I'm telling you, there there's going to come a time that, that you're not going to be worshiping here on this mountain, worshiping God. You're going to be worshiping me. You're going to be looking to me. You're going to be looking to the cross. Amen. And and that's him. That's him going through the future of that. And then you go to like. Uh, um, verse 23 and this this really got me um it says but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such to worship him and all i could think of brian was the was the verse that says the eyes of the lord go to and fro <laughs> yeah searching looking for those that will be searching for him and then you then you hear him later on down the line he says um in the harvest you know look at the field the harvest is is um he's says you know it's not it's not even it's not even harvest time when when he's talking to him and and he's saying look look at what's coming the harvest is ready and he's and he's already saying his his basically future telling saying that this people that she's evangelizing to is coming, and now we get to speak about it. Mm. And then, and I, and I kind of brings... often wonder too, too, if if he's not also looking at that at that point, looking also forward to the day of Pentecost. Oh man! When when the Spirit of God is going to come down upon people, and this is something going back even to the book of Jeremiah, where Jeremiah talks about a new covenant where God is going to write his law on the hearts of men and women. Yeah. And Joel talks about, the prophet Joel talks about a time coming where where the Spirit of God will come upon uh, all people, people of faith that is, uh, maid servants, men servants, rich and poor, men, mm. men and women alike, that the Spirit of God is coming down. So I'm kind of wondering if he's not also there looking forward to that time where people would come to worship him spiritually. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and then you kind of look down just below that into chapter five, just one verse, and I want I want to just read that verse real quick because here's something because chapter five is is uh, is important for sure in this part of it. But chapter five, verse six, 
when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there, already been there in that condition a long time. So here we are again. We're we're just dumping through this this knowledge of God, saying, "Hey, I I know the thoughts. I know the actions. I know why you've been where you've been. I know where you're at." It's not a good time to be playing poker. Not not at all. And just to kind of sum this to sum up the the next two passages of scripture. Um, John 11, we see the same thing happen with with the story of Lazarus. Yeah. yeah. Jesus knows what's going to happen before it does. Mark 14, 13 through 15, he says, since two of the disciples to the city, um, tells them a man with a water jar is going to meet them there, and he's going to say, say to the man of the house, the teacher, the rabbi needs uh, the guest room to have Passover with the disciples. So Jesus knows it. There's another one that just dawned on me that I didn't think about. There's a miracle that shows the knowledge of Jesus where they needed to pay some type of tax. I can't even remember uh, where it is. But yeah. Jesus sends the disciples to go get a fish, to fish at a certain part. They fish, they catch the fish, and in the fish there's these two coins. And yep. it's enough to pay the tax. So pay for, yeah, pay for Peter and for uh, pay, pay for Peter and Jesus, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, you see this type of knowledge all throughout. So, again, um, this knowledge is, is thorough. Uh, the, the, the scriptures, you know, talk about the divine omniscience of God thoroughly, as we see. Uh, yeah. And, you know, kind of think about, think about that when you were talking about in Mark, when it's a man carrying, carrying a jar of water. Think, think about the timing, again, right, right then and there where... That he knows the disciples are going to be going looking for a man carrying a jar of water and lo and behold the timing just so happens to be they meet him good stuff good. so number number three um, if God foreknows the future are people truly free to make their decision I think we have a jet going over if you hear something I don't see it but I hear it <laughs> and it must be really low. <laughs> so, you know, the thing about it is we didn't know that was going to happen, but God knew that was going to happen before the jet ever flew over. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Look and see if I saw it, but I didn't. I don't know where it We must have went over the trees or something. <laughs> yeah, so did you get that question? I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> it was number, number three, if God foreknows the future... Are people truly free to make their own decisions then? Oh, so this is a big, probably one of the stickiest theological situ- uh, questions that right. there is. Uh, and this really comes back to the whole issue of divine sovereignty and human freedom. But really, I, I think there are, at the heart of this problem is our inability to understand divine omniscience. And I think another thing that we really have a difficult time understanding, and I don't know that we it's, it's possible for us even to understand it completely, is how God interacts with time. How does an eternal God interact with time, uh, the time that we're in now? So to, to lay out this situation, there are basically seven schools of thought. And so I want to, I want to go through this, and then I want to kind of give. As I go through this, I'll give what I believe is the best answer to this. Sure. So I think, and let me just say that a lot of times we Christians combat over this issue, but I'm yeah. thinking all except for two of these positions can be feasible. Okay. Yeah. Now, as I've mentioned before, we've mentioned on the podcast before. I don't. I'm not a Calvinist. But I do think if certain persuasions of Calvinism, while I don't agree with it, can fit, but but uh, if it goes to the point of the extreme version, then I think it's out of bounds with the Scripture. And I'll explain that as I go through. So there are seven. Number one, we see classical Calvinism. This holds that God predetermines all actions. Uh, thus, while a person may appear to have freedom to choose X versus Y, God planned all the interactions in eternity past. Now, Calvin was open to the possibility that people did have freedom, 
But this freedom was really a false sense of freedom. It seemed like we had the ability to choose. From our perspective, we have the ability to choose. But really, God had designed all of it from the eternity past. Classical Arminianism holds that God's, God knows future events. And Wesleyanism would, would fit in this as well. Thus, individuals have the opportunity to make decisions, but God already knows what decisions would be made before they make them ahead of time. Thomism is a middle ground. This comes from Thomas Aquinas. Uh, Thomas hold that God is an omnitemporal being, and we'll talk about this in a future podcast. He knows all points of time equally. And because of this, God continues to exist in a uh, in, in an e- eternal time, so to speak, and operates from an from what, he, from what Aquinas calls an eternal now. So God moves, and people have the freedom to respond, but they respond accordingly to how God moves on them, and so uh, to respond, so to speak. So it's not so much that God causes them to do evil; it's God's grace acting on them, and they respond in kind. Uh, so th- there's that possibility. If you think about it like a, the game of pool, uh, a cue ball hits the the, ball, the billiard balls or the pool balls, and they all go in different directions. So it's kind of something comparable to this. So Molinism, this was developed by Louis de Molina, who was a Thomist who wanted to extend this theory out. He combines the aspects of di- divine prescience or foreknowledge of Arminianism with the sovereignty of God established in Thomism and Calvinism. So, Molinism is really a form of Thomism, but in Molinism, God operates from three modes of knowledge. Natural knowledge relates to God's complete knowledge on how the world works. So he created all things, he knows the laws of logic, he knows the potentials of things that can be uh, as they as they were, his free knowledge is like this divine foreknowledge. He knows the end result of all things. He knows how everything's going to operate as he dictates, you know, things to operate in in moving in the world. Molina asked the question though, because Aquinas said he believed in human freedom. He's in fact, Aquinas said that the law makes no sense unless people are free to choose X versus Y. But Molina asked the question, how could God have this natural knowledge and this free knowledge and people still be free? Well, he developed a concept called middle knowledge, which is a knowledge in between the two. And this middle knowledge is a knowledge of what free creatures would choose to do in certain circumstances. So uh, this is the fourth aspect. Now, there were some Molinists, such as Francisco Suarez, who combined the Thomism a little bit more with Molinism uh, and, and presents kind of a middle ground. Uh, and this is called something like congruism, or some people call Swarzeanism, I guess is how you say that. But this gives a bit more credence to God's control over the course of history. So for Suarez, God is in all points of time. However, through his middle knowledge, he, he shows him how free creatures will act in certain uh Situation. So here's the thing about it. If Molinism and incongruism are true, then that means that God places people in certain times and places to give them the best opportunity to respond to His grace. And so if you think about this, in God's sovereignty and His knowledge, He placed us in 2020 at this moment in time to reach people that other people in times past may not have been able to reach the way we are now. Uh, we are placed in the time and place that we are for a reason, and we're given this freedom to respond to His grace and kind. So the last two methods are two that I think are out of bounds. The sixth method is called open theism. Open theists would say that for people to be free, then God wouldn't be able to know what a person's going to do, because if God knows what a person's going to do, then the person wasn't really free to do what they were going to do. So according to open theists, they say that God doesn't know future events. So he lives only in the moment, only in this time now. Well, how does that, how would that even work against scripture? Because what we just read was you could tell that he was saying or doing actions or saying those things that would, that would point into that future. 
Absolutely, and that's that's one of my big problems with open theism. Now, just to be fair, some open theists would say that God has a pretty good calculated guess on how things are going to work. Um, now, I don't think that I don't think that could be the case. I mean, some some people would see some open theists would see God as being like a supercomputer and being able to calculate all the details to to, to have a pretty good guess about how everything would come about. But I don't think that's the same thing that what we find is what we find in Scripture. Um, so I really have to say I think open theism is out of bounds, scripturally speaking. Yeah. Determinism is the seventh system. It takes Calvinism to its extreme point to the, to the degree that I don't even know that we should even call it Calvinism because Calvin was open to some degree of human freedom or of responsiveness, if you want to call it that. Determinists believe that God dictates all things and all human beings don't choose to do anything. So even the bad that a person does was dictated by God from eternity past. Hmm. Being Basically saying that when a person does something, God's doing it. Yeah. And yeah. I think that that is a dangerous position to take because we are essentially blaming God for... Our bad decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And do we even give them credit for the good decisions then? <laughs> yeah, I mean yeah. that that's a good that's a good point. So so what you would find in this is you'd have people who might go out and do something horrible and they say, Well God did it because I didn't have any choice in the matter. Right. Or something good yeah. you know, but if something good happens then that's a good valid question. We're gonna say God did it, you know, if you go that yeah. route. You know. Yeah. Well, and, I've, and I don't know if it's the determinists that I've, that I've heard of, but maybe just the far extreme Calvinists that they even actually take signs down off their church, don't have any signs, don't have any uh, really church insignias to not draw any unbelievers in. Yeah. And, S- and some so extreme on. form of Calvinism will do that. I mean, that there there is no evangelism. In extreme Calvinism, because they they believe that if you are the elect, then you'll come. But and but the, the some would even say that we don't need that we can't even know who the elect are. So you may be a Christian, and, you know, you may say that you're a Christian and live your life for Christ, and you may still be lost, or you may be someone on the street and never accepted Christ, and you may be some of the elect, and then maybe you come to Christ the last moment, and then you. So there's no way of even knowing. There's no assurance of salvation. And yeah, talk about confusion. That doesn't even line up with Scripture. I, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. Yeah. So those are all interesting. And, and I, I'll be honest with you, I, I would have to agree. It, you know, as we're reading through them, you know, the, the Thomism and Molinism really makes sense um, in, in, in how the reality of what we see you know and and how how that lines up with scripture at least for me same way i think i think i don't think well in arminianism i i don't think wesleyanism and arminianism necessarily has to be the extreme where it's only just foreknowledge i believe right. a more developed version of those will come closer to a, a molinist perspective but 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 the point in all of that is is that there are middle grounds that we could take to show that that it doesn't have to be either God is sovereign and knows everything uh, is omniscient or humans are free. It can be both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's and that to me that that speaks more of of what what I see in Scripture. I mean, um, you know, you hear of of, of somebody you know um, coming to Christ out of out of uh, out of a tragedy, um, and you know they were completely walking a different direction. Something wasn't going, you know, where they they weren't going where they needed to be, and God got a hold of their heart um, and and turned them. And then there's times where you see they're actually on a true truth quest, trying to find out what and who God is, and God allows them. To, to keep digging and discover who they who he is and and by that 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 builds that relationship so I see both ways Absolutely. in scripture yeah so number four uh, if God foreknows the future 
the future evil actions of people. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he work to stop them? So th- th- this is a good question. M- many mm. people will ask this question: If God knew what Adolf Hitler was going to do, why did he not stop Adolf Hitler, uh, right. or or cause him to be aborted, or or cause him to suffer some tragedy or something like that in in, in life? Thomas Molinus, Armenians and Congruists alike hold that God cooperatively works with human freedom. Now, here's the thing we have to understand. God places a high value on human freedom. Right. If God were to intervene in these issues as bad as they are, that strips away human freedom. And some people will say, well, cannot God, can't God intervene? Of course he can. Does God not do miracles? Absolutely he does. Most certainly. Um, but is he going to remove or strip away a human freedom, the human freedom to choose X versus Y? No. And the reason is, as we've mentioned in a previous podcast, it's the whole aspect of love. For you to truly love someone... You have to be able to freely love that person. If it's forced, then it's not really a genuine, authentic love in the end. Right, right. So there has to be that freedom. So, so for, for instance, and I, and, I, and I was kind of thinking about this, and it's kind of like a parable. It's, suppose, it's okay, suppose you're a dad and you have two sons. And um, one of them's named Alex and one of them's named Bill. Alex is a is a is a loving son. He is um, um, he he graciously loves you. He li- really listens. He pays attention, and he's a good kid. Bill's a good kid, but the problem with Bill is he's a very independent-minded guy. He's 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 prideful, and he and he beats to the beat of his own drum, and that's not necessarily bad. But but you want these guys to go live with you in this golden palace that you've developed. Okay, so one of the pathways you set before them, you know, you say, I want you to come join me at my golden palace. But you give them the option to take one or two roads. One road leading to the golden palace is a rocky, steep road going up this hillside that's very difficult to manage, but, but it's, it's worth the effort in the end. The other one is a smooth road full of luxuries, uh, apple trees, fruit, and everything like that, but it leads down towards a pit. If you think of this pit, this pit's where murderers and thieves and, and all kind of horrible people live. Okay? But you give them the choice to go their own path. Okay? Now, they decide, Bill decides to go down this. He says, I'm not going to listen to you, Dad. I'm going to go the easy road. I'm going to take the easy way. So he goes down this path. He convinces Alex to go with him. But you call out to Alex from from in the woods and to, to to encourage him to leave this path because they can easily take a take a route to go back to the right path to go to the golden palace so you're constantly calling to them to do this eventually alex listens and he goes but suppose that bill continues on this road and as you're calling out to him lovingly encouraging him to go on the other path he curses you and he does all kind of bad things and he's just more determined to go towards the pit but as people see him going down the pit, maybe they're influenced to go on the pathway going to the Golden Palace themselves. So because even though Bill's decisions were bad, it may have been that there was a way that it reached other people to, to, to encourage them to go to the, on the better path, even though it's a little harder path, but go to the path that leads to the Golden Palace. And just imagine yourself as you're calling out to Bill, and even as he goes in this one-way gate where he can't return, you're still lovingly calling to him before he enters that gate, but Bill doesn't listen. So I think if we think about it in this way, God is like that loving Father who's given us the ability to respond or reject His grace. And I think He calls out to all of us to be saved. Uh, but even with the bad decisions of individuals, it can lead to greater good in the end uh, being the fact that there's some people who see the bad actions and say, hey, I need to straighten out my life so I don't end up like that. For instance, my wife had a family member that was involved in all kind of bad things, and um, seeing seeing this family member live as the family member did, it further convinced her as a young child that she didn't want to do that. Uh-huh. You know, So she didn't want to be like that. So I think that even with the bad decisions, God has a way 
of bringing out something good in the end. We may not know it. We may not see it. And we may not even know what the good is until we get to eternity. But I think God, being the loving God as He is, He works through human choices and in the end brings out something great in His sovereign plan. Right. And that kind of goes to that, that whole idea that I that I keep talking about is that ripple effect that that something happens but it ripples forward through time to to draw people a different direction or push people in a different direction or draw people to God. Absolutely, most certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So number five, is God restrained by time? Now, absolutely not, and so the, the, we're going to talk about the open theist in the next couple of questions. But so, so open theist would say that God doesn't know future events; He's restrained by time in that regard. But um, I would probably hold more in common with the, the congruous form of Molinism, which is kind of a midway between Thomism and Molinism. Uh, it's not, you know, it's it's kind of that middle ground. But uh, anyhow. As such, I, I do believe that that middle knowledge works in, in showing that God can exist in the eternal. Now, God's time is different than our time, but uh, uh-huh. he knows all points of time. But, uh, but rather than time-restricting God, I think God is the Lord of time. God uh-huh. created time. So God can't, be, God can't be restrained by something you know, he created unless he willingly does so, as we see with Jesus when he steps into you know into humanity becoming taking on flesh he limited himself in some capacity right yeah and um william william lane craig does a really good job talking about this how um at that very instant that jesus was on the earth that was the moment where god actually stepped into our time yeah and 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 worked through that even though he was outside of time prior to that, yeah. The only, the only the way I understand this, and I, and I was I was corrected by a friend of mine who knows William Lane Craig personally. The the only question I have with that is, we just need to make sure that God is still out remains outside of time. I, yeah. I don't think we can say that he's either or. I think God steps into time, uh, our time, but I think he, there's still some part of God that remains outside of time. So yeah. there again, he's not restrained by time. He's actually the Lord of time. Yeah. And no disrespect See, to William Lane Craig, I love him to death, and he's a hero of mine. And I didn't, you know, yeah. just just so everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, number six is God's knowledge limited by His moral nature. So no, and, and so here again, here's something that open theists have sometimes said. They've they've sometimes argued sometimes argued that God limits His knowledge on our behalf to respect the freedom of human beings. But I, I don't see any reason to take this step. Uh, I, I'm I'm far I actually far more comforted in knowing the fact that God is limitless in His understanding and knows far better than I do. Uh, open theists believe that they've resolved the issue of the problem of evil by limiting his knowledge but their attempts actually backfire as they make God less than who God is and leaves people with a bit of uncertainty so um, I, I don't think that God knowing what we're going to do in any way restricts us being able to do freely what we choose to do in response to God's grace. I don't think his knowing that we're going to do something in any way impedes us from doing that. Yeah. And that, I guess that's when when we try to um, humanize uh, God's knowledge, I think I think we, we lose an aspect of of being of being God and who he is. When we try to make God something that we can reach and grasp there are just some things like that right there god's knowledge being being unlimited that's something that we really can't grasp we're we're trying to work through that obviously with this podcast but it's this that's something where when we take god's knowledge we actually try to make it something human or humanistic uh understanding we really fall way short of it Absolutely. The moment you start restricting God, God's attributes, 
is is um, I mean there are some question over certain attributes such as for instance God's simplicity or or, or, or certain aspects of the personal nature of God that uh, there are certain certain question marks with that that theologians ask but I think that anytime we start restricting the the or limiting the abilities of God we've eliminated God from from who God is because God is the ultimate he's the supreme so it really causes, in my opinion, more problems than it solves. Right, right. So number seven, why did Jesus not know the time of his appearing? Why is it that only the Father knows if Christ is God incarnate? This this is a difficult one to tread, and this could probably deserve its own podcast. Uh, and there are different. There's several ways to handle this. The, and 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 some, I think Curtis, you'd mentioned something about even about the language that Jesus uses. The the one way that I've worked through one of the ways I've worked through this is to accept that when Jesus was the Logos, he had infinite knowledge, as he was equal with the Father. But if we go back and read Philippians two, the Philippians hymn, it's it's Christ took on flesh. As he took on flesh, he he limits himself. You know, right during right. that time. So during the time when he's on Earth. There were some limitations in some regards, so it's it's possible that his knowledge in some in some capacities was limited during his time on Earth. Now, does Jesus know now when he's going to return? I don't know. Um, I really have no clue. From the earliest times of the church, it was accepted that even though the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the same divine essence, their roles as such are different. Uh, so some people believe that, that that the Father is, even though there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Father is has the highest authority, perhaps, and then you know, then the Son, and then the Holy Spirit may flow from the Father and Son. Um, the even the entire aspect of from whom the Spirit flows has been a controversy throughout church history. Um, Basil of Caesarea. Now, now this is interesting. I, I, I really like what Basil of Caesarea does here. He argued in the 300s that uh, that the Father, he believed, like in creation, because we see the Father created things, we see the Logos or the Son creates things, and the Spirit was there hovering over the waters at creation. He believed that the Father created these immaterial forms, kind of like the blueprints to everything that exists. Then the Logos Jesus brought forth creation from those immaterial things to the physical world through the Holy Spirit that was enacting the whole entire process. So, basically what I'm trying to say in all of that is that they share the same essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they may have different functions. So, like the, the late great Norman Geisler, even even conceived the idea of of uh, of how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit works in our salvation. He argued that the Father designed it, designed the ways for our, for our salvation to come about. The Son, um, he uh, in, initiated or, or or executed it so that it could be done through the atonement on the cross, and the Holy Spirit applies it. To each and every individual. So even in that regard, you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They have different functions. They're still the same God, but they're operating in different ways. So if that's the case, there may be certain things, possibly, that the Father knows that the the Son doesn't, even though they're still the same God, so to speak. Right. It's confusing. I get. I mean, I readily admit that. <laughs> Well, and the the way I the way I I look at this is how I was taught, it, and and this is something that that we got to re- remember is Jesus when that was stated, um, when when that was stated in in his ministry, he was he was a a rabbi and he was teaching in. Uh, pictures and and types and shadows and idioms and using Jewish uh, um, words to you know trigger words to trigger thoughts and trigger um, a, a, an idea in his disciples eyes or ears to, to push them to a to an understanding that they already knew and was already done and I, that deserves like like you said a whole podcast just on that but 
but just in in just in my brief uh, explanation in that there is a possibility Jesus was pointing to a um, a, a specific time in 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 a Jewish idiom type mindset, a Jewish uh, picture type and shadow mindset. I mean that, that's that's possible, but the only the only problem I would have with that is is that. It, it seemed like the disciples were asking a specific question, and so it, it would it would appear that I mean anyway that may very well be the case. I'm not saying it's not, but it just it seems like Jesus leaves that to the Father's discretion in the end. So, yeah. it, but it may very well be as you say pointing to some type of season uh, that is that is coming in the end. Um, that that would deserve a lot more research on the issue and like you said that deserves a whole entire podcast <laughs> in and of itself yeah. yeah so number eight if god knows what is to happen and has a purpose is prayer effective and or necessary this is deep very much so and in fact i've even heard people who have said and i and i've heard individuals say if god knows everything that's going to happen and if god's in control of everything that's going to happen then why should I pray? If God already knows what's going to happen, He already has a plan for everything that's going to happen, what's the point in me praying? Okay. Um, so in short, I say the answer is yes. Just because God knows what's going to happen and has a plan construed to make things happen, that doesn't mean that our actions hold no value. And so l- let me give another short story to help here. So, so suppose from, from eternity past, God decides decided that by prayer he was going to heal Sister Susie but through the prayers of Curtis Evelo. Okay? He ordained that the prayers of Curtis Evelo would be the means by which Sister Susie would be, would be healed and would experience healing. So, but now what if Curtis has a rebellious streak and he says, I don't need to pray. God can do it on his own. He doesn't need me. Okay? Well, and God can do it on his own. He doesn't have to need us. Okay? But if it were possible to thwart the plan of God, then God would, would have used the prayers of someone else to demonstrate his power. But if that were the case, then God would have known from eternity past that Curtis would have rebelled and chose someone else to pray the prayer that Curtis didn't pray. But Curtis is a faithful man of God. Amen, Curtis? Yeah. Amen. <laughs> so Curtis for sure. prays for Sister Susie. God heals Sister Susie through Curtis's prayers, resulting in God's power being demonstrated, Curtis being blessed, and Susie being healed. So just because God planned something from eternity past, that doesn't remove the importance of our involvement because we don't know what that plan is. And so it may very well be that God plans to use our prayers to demonstrate His glory and through that glory, evangelize other people through our faithful prayers and through our faithful witnesses. God wants us to communicate with Him. Okay? And so I think prayer is as much for us as it is for anyone else. And so right. the Bible tells us we have not because we ask not. And so even if God knew that He was going to give us something, He wants to hear from us. He wants to commune with us. He's a relational God, so we need to... Yes, prayer is absolutely critical in our lives. Yeah, and, you know, it, it also does something in the believer's heart, um, you know, and, and draws us deeper in relationship with the Lord. It, it just even just even in that aspect, um, Him having a personal relationship with us, that's a deep thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been a good podcast. I hope everybody kind of takes this in and... Uh, we could have went on for another hour if we really wanted to, but um, I can't believe we got it all in. I, I was honestly thinking there's no way we're going to get all this stuff in in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was it was good. So I um, hope everybody enjoyed the crickets and the jets going over, and uh, you know uh, God moving at these times. So uh, we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier Soldier on, friends. friends.
listening to the Bellator Christie podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristie.com now and submit your question.